Let's pray. Lord, the enormity of a text like this is a bit overwhelming to try to communicate in one sermon. Lord, I've seen other pastors and preachers divide this up over seven or eight because it is so important to understanding who we were and understanding who we are now. And it carries such weight, Lord, of who or, or who the world is now. And the declaration over them that you have pronounced. And so, Father, I, I, I need your help. Holy Spirit, come and speak through me. There's so much here, Lord, to see and so much here to process. <clears throat> and we need... Holy Spirit, to come and enlighten our hearts for those who know you, Lord, to rejoice over the immeasurable power that you have displayed in making us yours. And for those who don't know you, Lord, the immeasurable power that is needed for them to be saved. It's so, a Lord, come. Holy Spirit, come. Anoint my words. Open your word. Enlighten the hearts of those who hear these words today. It's in the name of our King Jesus that we ask. Amen. So there are, there are many things that are wrong in this world. I mean, it doesn't take long to see this as you grow from childhood into adulthood. As adults, we are constantly faced with real problems that plague the world, whether it's death or joblessness or murder, sexual immorality, depression, wars, sickness, greed, pride, uh, theft, abuse of power, poverty, exploitation. You can go down the list. It could go on and on. I mean, as a parent, I'm constantly answering questions from my children about why things are the way they are in the world. Injustices that just don't make sense to them. Crimes that are just mind-boggling to them in their young brains. Why is the world the way it is? I think, however, we tend to believe that our existing context right now, today, is the worst that it's ever been in history. The media certainly does a remarkable job of telling us just how bad everything is. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people talk about how depressing the news is or how bad the world is getting. In our day and age of technology and information, we have really never been so exposed to the realities that we face in our world. It was John Stott who once said, I sometimes wonder if good and thoughtful people have ever been more depressed about the human predicament than they are today. And he wrote that in 1979. Now here we are 38 years later, and the exact same thing could be said today. In fact, I would say with complete confidence that people view the situation now on a universal scale as far worse than it was in 1979. People are seemingly far more depressed about the human predicament than ever before. 
In fact, in response to such dire circumstances that we see around the world, many have endeavored to solve the problems of the world through institutions and activism. We create nonprofits to solve the, the problem of injustice, or we pass legislation to fight hunger, to create a welfare program, or perhaps we create a petition to demand a policy change for some local or national problem that we believe needs to be changed. But despite the circumstances and despite the efforts to fix the problems that we see, man largely remains ignorant of the cause of the problem. Why do I say this? Plain and simple, things have not gotten any better at all. I mean, 2,000 years ago, the same problems that we read about from way back then, centuries ago, are not so different than what we see now. Wars, exploitation, slavery, racism, oppression, bad economies, they have existed for thousands of years. We just have more technology now to inform us more intimately of the issues that we have in our world. And these issues and problems and events that lead lead us to feel despair at times, they are real issues. There's no getting around that. They are real issues. And we're convinced that things are only getting worse, which in some ways is true. But there is at least one thing that has gotten far better from year to year, and that is man's ability to believe that he is ultimately good. We hear this all the time, don't we? I mean, this message has only increased in recent years. Mankind is convinced that they are ultimately good and that they are not the problem. I mean, I grew up in a faith that taught that everyone was good. Save the worst of the worst who commit heinous crimes. We've convinced ourselves that we are not the problem. In fact, I would say that mankind's self-knowledge, that is the understanding and the lens by which we view ourselves, is quite rosy. When we look in the mirror, we see ourselves as outside of the problems of the world, outside of the root cause of the issues, and outside of any responsibility for the ways of the world. We look across the aisle or even across the pond and see that person over there and think to ourselves, they are the problem. We go to work and see a coworker whose greed or selfishness has led to your economic turmoil. And we think, how could they be so cruel? We gossip about our friends and our family and sit and judge one another in our classrooms or in our jobs or in our churches. Or those in other countries and think to ourselves, at least I'm not that bad. It is them. They need to change. They are the problem. They, they, they. Our self-knowledge in the mirror that we look into each and every day as humans, is rosy at best. So we face two problems. First is a world full of issues that never seem to go away. And second, a false view of ourselves that is propped up by our insistence that everyone else is the problem. Everyone in the world recognizes that evil exists. There's no doubt about that. But one of the biggest myths, perhaps the biggest deceit in the world, 
is that everyone else is the problem. The second biggest myth is that deep down inside, we are inherently good people. And it's against this background, the background of our world today and the reality through which mankind views themselves, that Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, stands out with remarkable relevance for us today. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you have a pew Bible in front of you, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Looking at the first 10 10 verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, when we arrive at chapter 2, we are faced with one of two options. You are either alive or you are dead. That's what's facing us in these first three verses. So let's look at those three verses. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the the rest of mankind. We're going to stop there before we continue on. Now we're going to walk through these these first three verses one by one. But first, let's lay the groundwork for who Paul is referring to here. We can say with certainty that he is first referring to those who know Christ and have put their faith in him. We're talking about Christians. We can see this in how he is writing with the words, you were, which you once walked, how we all once lived, and how by nature you were. These are past tense terms. So there's something for Christians here that is important for us to understand and know about who we were and who we are now. How did you get to be who you are in Christ? That's what Paul is aiming at in these first three verses. Or throughout this whole text, really. You were were once, verses 1 through 3. This is a description of who you were. So this passage tells your story, if you are a Christian. Second, the second people that Paul is directing this to is everyone else. Those who are not in Christ. Those who do not know Jesus and those who do not worship him and do not know his power or see his greatness and do not know his love and have never tasted his mercy. We see this in verses 2 and in verse 3 when Paul refers to the sons of disobedience as those that Satan is still working among and influencing. And when Paul references the rest of mankind. So everyone in this room falls into one of those two categories. You are either in Christ or you are not. You are either still currently what is described in verses 1 through 3 or you were previously. You are either dead now or alive now. And so Paul breaks down the human problem in such a way that leaves no question as to our biggest issue in the world. He doesn't leave much room for wondering what the major problem with the world truly is. He doesn't waste any time getting right to the point. He breaks it down into a series of four statements. About the status of all mankind, either right now, meaning this is who they are now, or before, meaning this is who they were before they became a Christian. 
Look at verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now when we read verse 1, it can strike us with finality. And it should. Paul shoots those myths that we talked talked about earlier right down. You came into the world dead. You weren't just having a hard time hearing the truth of God. You didn't come into the world with a touch of ability to know the truth of God. You didn't come into the world even struggling with your sin. You were spiritually dead. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Now, a statement about our deadness such as this can raise problems for us. We are faced daily with people from every walk of life who seem very much alive. They can be kind and thoughtful and giving and pleasant and seemingly happy. They go about their lives with this happiness and they might even do good and moral things. Are we to believe that even though they do all these things and appear alive, that they are dead? And if you were sitting here this morning thinking that you are a good person, thinking about your kindness and the fact that you have given money to charities and have even maybe displayed love in a variety of ways, if you are doing all these things and yet still do not know Jesus Christ, God's declaration over you is still one who is dead. One cannot be partially dead. You are either spiritually alive or you are spiritually dead. You are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. You are deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. There is no love for God, no awareness of the intimate and personal reality of God, and no longing for fellowship with Him or His people. You are as unresponsive to Him as a corpse, while dressed in beautiful clothing, and made to look as though they were alive, are still unresponsive, spiritually lifeless, and unmoving. What Paul is saying that is that you were dead walking in your sin. Notice the you here. He isn't saying other people. He is saying you. You were dead in your sin. He continues that even that you that you were even walking in your sins and trespasses. Not only were you stillborn spiritually, but you were actively walking, meaning willfully participating in the ways of the world. This is the manner in which you conducted your life. He continues in his second statement that you were following the course of the world. In other words, you were born spiritually dead, but that that spiritually dead status led you to live a life full of godless practices and beliefs, following the ways of a spiritually dead world. You were spiritually dead, and therefore the ways in which you walked or conducted yourself were the fruit of your spiritual deadness. He takes it even further in his third statement in verse 2. Stating that you were following the prince of the power of the air. This is Satan that Paul is talking about here. And he alludes to this later in Ephesians as well. The practice of those who are dead in their sin and trespasses is to live following the ways of the world in the leading of Satan. Who, according to Paul here, is still exerting his influence 
The spiritual influence over those who are disobedient, those who are dead. They live according to the passions of their flesh, the desire of their body and mind. They live a life of spiritual death. We see in the text, you're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, if we leave it at those three statements alone, there's a possibility that you could think that some perhaps are not born this way. Perhaps these actions are only done by some who have especially evil hearts. Or people who have simply lost their way. There's a famous psychologist some years ago by the name of Carl Rogers who promoted the belief that mankind is basically good and that our main problem is that we have lost touch with our inner goodness. Many people think that sin is simply a bad action or bad deed. Oh, he was a good person and simply lost his way. We hear that all the time. He was such a good guy. It's just that he made some really bad decisions. Folks, our problem is not that we are good people who lose our way from time to time. We are spiritually dead. Our bad actions are the symptoms of our condition. Dead. When Paul finishes verse 3 with his fourth statement, he makes this crystal clear. You were a child under the wrath of God by nature like the rest of mankind. Our status of being spiritually dead and the subsequent practice of walking in the ways of the world are not simply consequences of what people who choose to reject God do. It is the evidence of what they are. In other words, Paul is saying, all of us lived among those who were dead in their disobedience. That was all of us. One time, following the passions of our bodies and minds and satisfying the cravings of our sinful hearts. This was disobedience apart from God. This was not some unexpected decision that was outside of our normal selves. No, we are living according to our very nature. It was inherent in who we are as humans. By nature... We were children of wrath. What is this wrath, though? We hear this word in church all the time. We read it in the scriptures. John Stott, I think, helps us to understand this word wrath very, very well. He writes, God's wrath is not like man's. It's not bad temper so that he may fly off the handle at any moment. It is neither spite nor malice nor animosity nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable, and it is never subject to mood, whim, or or, uh, caprice. So what is this wrath? What is his wrath if it is neither an arbitrary reaction nor an impersonal process? It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Paul is saying here, is that we, by nature, were born under the weight of this righteous justice of God. It is inherent in who we are. 
Paul's intent as we move from these three verses is clear. You were hopeless. It is designed to make us feel hopeless. For you cannot taste the glory and the grace of God without realizing the hopelessness of your situation. So my friends, hear this. You were dead in sin. The problem of the world or in your life is not your environment or a bad decision or bad self-esteem. The problem is not other people or bad governments or bad countries or a bad job. The problem is that you were dead in your sin. Following the ways of the world under the influence of Satan, just like every other human being in the world who followed the passions of your body and of your mind, and you were dead because you were born that way. It isn't something you did. It is that you do things because of who you are. Someone born under the wrath of God who stands condemned. In that nature and in those deeds. If your faith is in Jesus, that is who you were. And you must know this to know what you have been saved from. And so you can intimately understand the grace that you have received. And if you are not a Christian and do not believe in Jesus, you must know this, that this is who you are now. This is God's declaration over what you are now. You are dead. And there is nothing that you can do about it. Dead people don't make themselves alive. They don't do a little bit of life. You can't be partially dead or sort of dead or kind of dead. Think of that Monty Python. Bring out your dead. You must know this. There is nothing you can do to make yourself alive. Verses 1 through 3 brings us a lot of bad news. This weight can be overwhelming. So right now you are either feeling depressed, bored, angry, or feeling hopeless. Or you are feeling exceptionally grateful. But you must know this because it is in this reality of who we were or who you are now that we read the most the two most most powerful most important words the most powerful two syllables ever spoken in the English language but god let the weight of those words hit you you were dead Completely, totally, and utterly dead in your sin. Lifeless, unresponsive to any form of spiritual life. Following every deed and thought and under the influence of the devil himself. But the devil is not your main problem in this text. You are. It is you who is the problem. But God. Dead people cannot make themselves alive. You were absolutely hopeless. But God, let those words hit you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. These two words, but 
God tell us the entirety of the gospel message. It contains the Christian message for the world. Paul makes very clear to us that we required a sovereign deliverance, a divine intervention, and a supernatural power that was far beyond our ability. He does this by describing our absolute inability due to our deadness and nature in verses 1 through 3. But also by describing the power that was required to rescue us from it. It is His merciful love and His divine power that are combined here to deliver us from death. In verses 4 and verses 5, we see the motive for this divine intervention. And it is nothing less than the richness of His mercy and the greatness of His love. In the great love and rich mercy of God, He stepped in and saved people who were originally dead and by nature were the very objects of His wrath. God pours out His mercy and His love on a people who were disobedient, who by nature followed the ways of the world and the ways of of the devil. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which, in which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. But what did this sovereign intervention do? But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love in which He loved us, in our current state of deadness, And objects of his wrath did what? We see it at the end of verse 4. He made us alive in Christ. He made the dead alive. You were dead and now you are alive. What Paul is doing here is showing us the very power that was required for this to happen. By comparing our situation to what he had written at the end of chapter 1. Let's go, we're going to go back to the text that you had for last week. At least I think this is the text you had. The very end of chapter 1. Looking at verses 19 and 21. The immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the same power, the same immeasurable greatness of His power, this same great might that rose Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of God, this is the same power and might that made you alive in Christ. It required the same sovereign, immeasurable greatness and great might that raised Jesus from the dead and gave him dominion over all things that it took to raise you from your dead state. How can you know the resurrection of Jesus is true? Because the same power that raised him from the dead was required to raise you from the dead. Paul is saying you were dead in your sins. And God in, his, in the greatness and might and power made you alive. In the same way that he made Jesus alive when he was dead. And he did it out of the depths of his mercy for you. 
and in the greatness of his love for you. My friends, you did not do this. You did not do this. No one in this room who believes in Jesus raised themselves from the dead. No one. It had to come from outside of you. This took a sovereign act of God to breathe life into you. You did not do this. This text is showing you what power it took to make you a Christian. And you did not have the ability to do this yourself. Dead people don't make themselves alive. Only God can do that. And as He did it to Christ, He has done it to you. And it took massive power for you to be saved. How foolish we can be to believe that our decision to follow Jesus is all it took for you to be saved and to be made alive. It took the same amount of power for God to raise Jesus from the dead that it did to save you. Do we really think that we have the power to make that which is dead, namely ourselves, alive? Paul says, no. It was the power of God that did that. And he stepped in, in your deadness, and in his love, and in his mercy, the richness and greatness of both, He said, Lazarus, come forth. Or Paul, come forth. Lazarus was not asking to be raised from the dead. Do you remember this story from the Gospels? But in mercy and love, Jesus says, come forth. And Lazarus did. Just as he did to you when you were spiritually dead in your sin. It is important enough to note that Paul would interrupt his own sentence seemingly out of nowhere in verse 5. Let's look at verse 5 again. It's one little randomly placed piece right in the middle of a sentence. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. It is right there in the middle of a sentence. Paul's going to repeat this again in verses 8 and 9. God, in the greatness of His love, in the riches of His mercy, made you alive. And it was His grace that made it happen. Paul goes out of his way to interrupt his own sentence to drive this point home. You can imagine somebody talking and having a conversation and stopping themselves and throwing that in there. It's different when you're writing. You can be calculated when you write. But it was so important that he could cut himself off in the middle of a sentence to make sure that you understand. To make sure that you understand to be clear that you didn't do it. It was God's grace that made a living person out of a dead person. Grace is not, it's not dispersed in response to our initiative as if we first believe and then he will make you alive. I believe Paul puts this in the middle of the sentence to make you understand that after all we read in verses 1 through 3, that there was absolutely no way that you could defeat the course of the world. No way that you could defeat the power of Satan. No way to defeat the passions of your flesh and the desires of your body and of your mind. And no way for you to defeat your nature as a child of wrath in order for you to become alive. As if God then pours His grace on you after you have defeated all of those things. Paul says, absolutely not. 
It is by grace that you have been saved. And he says it again in verses 8 and 9, which will drive this point even further. So we'll jump ahead to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is not your own doing, Christian. It was a gift from God. You did nothing to earn it. There were no good works done to make your standing before God change. You were dead, and by His grace, you have been saved through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, we must be careful here, lest we misunderstand what is being said in verse 8. It'd be easy for us to read this and assume that the grace of God saved us because of our faith. English is a bit deceptive here. But do you see this word, the word this, in verse 8? And this. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. In the Greek, this this in verse 8 is so placed in this sentence so that the word applies to both faith and salvation. In other words, both the saving and the faith to receive it are gifts of God to you. From start to finish. And we see this in both chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Salvation is the work of God from start to finish. God breathed life in you. He made you alive and then gave you the ability to even believe. John Stott, again, helps to articulate this point so well. He says, It is neither your achievement nor a reward for any of your deeds of religion or philanthropy. Since, therefore, there is no room for human merit, there is no room for human boasting either. Salvation is God's gift, lest any man should boast. Christians are always uncomfortable in the presence of pride, for they sense its incongruity. We shall not be able to strut around heaven like peacocks. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and the praises of God. There will be indeed a display in heaven, but not self-display, however, but rather a display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace, mercy, and kindness through Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verse 7. Not only did God pour His mercy on you and in the greatest of His love make you alive in Christ, and as if that weren't amazing enough in and of itself, what else did He do? In verse 6, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Is this not the same that you read at the end of chapter 1 that we read a few minutes ago? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places? Now look again at Ephesians 2, 4 and 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Just as God rose Jesus from the dead and exalted him, as Paul describes in chapter 1, so he raises us up from the dead 
and exalts us with Christ. As he shows us here, it took that kind of power, the power to raise Jesus from the dead, to raise you from the dead. And just like he lifted Jesus up to the heavenly places, so he too will raise us up to the heavenly places. It's amazing. It's simply amazing. Why does he do this? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That he might show the immeasurable riches. Think of those words. Ponder those words. Immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ. This brings us right back to the beginning of chapter 1. Verse 6. Why did he do this? Why does God save us like this? Chapter 1, verse 6. He writes, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, God predestined you in love. The same greatness of love that made you alive in Christ. Why? That he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness to you. In making you alive in Christ. So that you will praise this glorious grace forever and ever. You get the joy of being made alive. The joy of experiencing these immeasurable riches of His grace. The joy of experiencing the greatness of His love. You get the joy of being exalted up to the same heavenly places as Jesus Himself. And God gets the glory by the praise of that glorious grace. That's what's happening here in this text. We'll conclude on verse 10 which is a beautiful conclusion of this text. As if everything that Paul has said from verses 1 to 9 were not enough, he adds this piece on to the end. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with, walk in them. What does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? What does it mean to be intimately crafted by a creator? This word workmanship, it's one of my favorite words that's used in the New Testament. It is the Greek word poema. The word from which we get the word poem in the English language. But really it means creation. Paul alludes to this in his next phrase, created in Christ for good works. You, Christian, are a new creation. Paul has alluded to us being resurrected from the dead here in Ephesians 2. We've been liberated from slavery in Galatians chapter 4. And freed from condemnation in Romans 8. And all of them show God's work done on our behalf. Dead people cannot raise themselves from the dead. Slaves cannot free themselves. Condemned people cannot remove their condemnation on their own accord. 
And again, Paul tells us salvation is creation. It is a new creation that came into being at the moment that you were made alive. Creation language here makes no sense if you were self-created. There must be a creator. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ. What were you created to do? You were created in Christ to do good works. That's what it says here. You were not saved by good works. It makes that crystal clear in verses 8 and 9. You were saved to do good works, as he says here in verse 10. And he prepared them beforehand for you to do. He has created you to walk in those good works. He made you alive. You are a new creation in Christ. And before the foundations of the earth, he even created the good works that he wants you to do. Our text today ends the same way that it began. With us walking. Before we walked in our deadness and trespasses and sins, of which the devil constantly influenced, just as he is influencing the rest of mankind now. Now, though, we walk in good works, which God has created and planned before the foundation of the world, eternally planned for us to do. In other words, God has set before you specific good works that he intends for you to do in your newly created life. And he will give you the power and the strength to do them. Walk in them. Make them the manner in which you live your life. In love and joy and with intent to display the greatness and the glory of God. If you are a Christian here this morning, this text describes your salvation. It is your story. You who were dead in your sin have been made alive. Just as God rose Jesus from the dead and exalted him, so he has raised you from the dead and exalts you with Christ. And it was a gift. You have been predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters in God's great love, in his great mercy, so that you will find your greatest and deepest joy in enjoying the immeasurable riches of his grace. The richness of his mercy and the greatness of his love. So that you will forever praise his glorious grace. You are a new creation. Created with a passion to do the good works that God has created created you to do. This is who you are. The but God of verse 4 tells your story. You were dead, but God. So go forth, displaying the greatness of our God and the grace by which he has given you to do so through a myriad of good works and tell the world, I am alive in Christ. However, if you were the second person I described earlier, one who does not follow Jesus, 
and still remains spiritually dead and walking around in the ways of your sinfulness and the course of the world, being led and influenced by Satan, remaining under the wrath of God, this moment is for you. Will you embrace what God has said about your condition? Your very nature in which you stand before God. Condemned. Christianity is not about becoming righteous enough to be accepted by God. There is nothing you can do to earn that. It is a gift. This text makes this crystal clear. It is a gift that God offers. It's a free gift. Christianity is accepting that your stance before God cannot be changed without the work of God on your behalf. But the beauty of this is that right now you can be made alive in Christ by simply trusting that Jesus died to make you new. Will you believe that? If you will say yes to him, he will raise you from the dead. He will make you alive. He will seat you in the heavenly places with Christ. And will start in you a process that will tell the world, you are a new creation. And that new creation cannot be stopped. Will you believe this? And I so hope that you will. Let's pray. Father, we who were once dead in our sin, following the ways of the world, influenced by the devil himself, following the passions and the lusts of our bodies and our minds, children of under wrath, children of wrath by nature, we who were once that Praise you and thank you that you have made us alive and that you stepped in in our deadness. We weren't just drowning in a sea of sin. We were dead face down in the water. And you came and you pulled us out and you breathed eternal life into our lungs and you made us new. Oh, Lord, I pray that everybody in this room who knows you, Lord, would feel the weight of what they were and what they are now in Christ. Alive. A new creation that you have created to do good works, to display the joy and the love and your greatness to a world that is still under wrath. And for those who do not know you, Lord, I know there are some in this room who do not know you. Holy Spirit, come. Let the light shine when there is darkness, Father. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, that they may see the reality that is before them here. And they see the gift. And that they would believe in all that you are and in the truth that you can make us alive. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen. Yeah, that's the